Well, we finished with the 16th through the 19th subtleties of Satan and how he is such a crafty um, serpent, a deceiver. He's really gifted at tricking us and getting us to make a choice that's foolish but is choosing to sin. And we want to recognize that it isn't so obvious right in our face and as easy to say no to. He knows how to wrap it. He knows where to give it to us. He knows the right moment. He knows how to wait for the right situation where we're most prone to say yes to him and to sin. Satan again tempts, we sin, uh, but we want to sin less. Remember our study is the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thomas Watson leading us in the book, The Lord's Prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we are picking it up now in the 20th subtlety. Remember there are 27 subtleties. When we finish, there's still a lot more to study, but we'll be through the subtleties. And uh, tonight we pick it up with the 20th subtlety. And uh, Thomas Watson writes this. The next subtlety, uh, a way he's really tricky to get us to sin, he strikes at some grace more than others. He strikes at some grace more than others. So he tries to take out you know, one of our defenses, uh, one of our defenses of God's grace to us more than others. He most strikes at something. What do you think the grace is that he tries to strike at the most? Perseverance, prayer. Uh, when, when we get it right, I'll give you a sign. None of these are wrong. He strikes at all these things. No. Yeah, Abraham? Kids? Not exactly. Oh, we talked about that last week. Think about the graces. Some of the... Uh, um, maybe you're thinking a little too specifically, I guess you'd say. Faith. You did? Why didn't you say something? Ah. <laughs> Okay, he strikes at faith, the grace of faith. He particularly attacks the grace of faith. Think about what does Jesus say so often, O ye of little faith. And, he, and what's the opposite? He says, stop being so fearful, <laughs> O ye of little faith. Fear is kind of the opposite of faith, right? Uh, we might remember that uh, in studying Philippians, and we'll touch a little bit on Philippians tonight with our study Sunday night's sermons, um, but remember, most recently, turn our worries into prayers. Or as I read, catching up on a few books, turn your cares into prayers. I find those things really helpful, just little things. Um, but the worry and anxiety, I think, so much does overlap and relate to fear. And when we're spending time with that, we're not praying, right? Prayer is certainly a really important part of our faith and growing in faith. So um, Satan is going to attack our faith. Because if he can get us to be uh, lack faith, we're pretty likely to be paralyzed and at least sin by the sin of omission, but often turn to the things that make us think we're more confident and more safe that are actually not good and make us sin. But of course, unbelief is sin, right? They didn't believe God in the garden, which is why they ate the fruit. That's a lack of faith. And one of the big things they're spoken of in, um, in, in all through the book of Numbers, the Israelites, they didn't believe God. They spoke the opposite of what God said. They lacked faith. And therefore, because of the sin of faith, a lack of faith, a lack of belief, sin of unbelief, they did all these things they shouldn't have done. And um, believed lies, right? And we talked a lot last week about how we have to be careful not to believe lies. So want to get us to believe in lies. But that would get us to have a lack of faith. So you can think about what are some of the prayers we want to make sure to have in view and when we close tonight. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, right, and increase our faith, 
Okay. Um, certainly those are prayers there for a reason, right? Okay. Uh, he gives us Luke 22, verse 32. Why don't we, why don't we turn there together? What did I... Ah, here we go. Luke twenty two thirty two. If you just think of it, if people say all the time, oh, I don't believe that, I don't believe that. If Satan get us not to believe, then we won't act, right? We won't obey if we don't believe. We won't step out in faith if there's no faith, right? At least a lack of faith is paralyzing, but it often gets us to backtrack and backslide and try to go back to Egypt and lie to ourselves and think that it was good for us there, okay? But we turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And we look at verse 32 together. I might give us a little context, but this is the verse he's referencing. Hold on, I skipped a chapter by mistake. I'm like, that can't be it. Okay. Luke, chapter 22, verse 32. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So he's, he's telling Simon Peter that Satan is uh, after you and he's trying to sift you like wheat, like sift you out of the church and get you to completely abandon like Judas. But he says, I have prayed for you. And what specifically? That your faith fail not. Beloved, it occurs to me as we're studying this, that's a prayer we ought to pray for one another a lot, ourselves as well, but I pray that their faith fail not. Because things are going to happen. Temptations are going to come. We need to pray, Lord, increase our faith. Help our unbelief. Let our faith fail not. Um, he doesn't go here, but uh, what I, you know, actually, let's go here. Let's go to John 17. So we see him pray for Peter that your faith fail not. And let, let's just, do you know the end of the story? Did Peter's faith fail? Completely? Failure like, no. Right? It wavered, but he came back. End of the Gospel of John, Jesus affirms him three times. Feed my sheep. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. So what's, Peter, what's Jesus doing there? This is really an insight first I've learned from uh, Oh, Alex Terbeg, he's affirming Peter three times at the end of the gospel, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, because he's probably doubting whether he can continue, and probably everybody else is, and Jesus affirms him three times, right? We have a number of things written to us by Peter. Who is the most prominent person in the book of Acts besides Paul? Peter, right? Uh, Jesus does use him uh, to be the, the rock, you know, to be the professing rock that the, the church will be built on. Um, so he doesn't, his faith doesn't fail. That's the point I mean to draw. His faith doesn't fail. In fact, he's used strongly by the Lord, not without further mistakes. There's a time where Paul has to correct him, right? But he does mighty things. He's got a mighty faith. He does tremendous things. This is the same guy that started falling in the water. Lord, save me! But why was he on the water? Because he had a lot of faith in Jesus. He wanted to go, yeah. He was kind of impetuous Peter. It's not that it's not real. He's, oh, yes, yes. But then it can pretty quickly, ah, you know, and then we need more faith. Lord, help my faith to fail not. But Peter had faith. He didn't lose it. Uh, it there's times of little faith. Uh, but Jesus prayed that his faith, think about that. I know Satan's going to come after you to sift you like wheat, and I've prayed that your faith fail not. Let me ask you something. Does Jesus get what he prays for? He's God's son, and he's without sin. Now, why is that so incredible? Because he's praying for you and me that our faith fail not. And I hope that encourages you today. I do want to 
digress and go to John 17 with you, okay? And of course, I went to the wrong way. John would be to the right of Luke. <laughs> I can blame the fact that I'm not using my own Bible, but that would probably not be the honest thing. Let me just say, I went the wrong way. For your amusement, it wouldn't be Wednesday night if I didn't go to the wrong scripture that I said, right? Okay, John 17. I'm going to go ahead and read until I get to where I'm thinking of, so I don't scroll past it several times and kill time. But I think context is really helpful too. But this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I want you to see that he prayed for you. And just as he prayed for Peter to be encouraged. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. And thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst sent me. I pray for them. Now look, verse 9. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. As you see earlier, this relates to election and God preserves his sheep. Let's continue. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou, that thou shouldest keepest them from the evil. Now before we continue, where I'm wanting to get notice, he prays that God will protect you from evil. This is the petition we're praying in the Lord's Prayer. and He prayed it for you also. It's interesting he highlights this in part of his request in the high priestly prayer. We see why it's pretty important to study this together. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So he prayed for your sanctification, that you'd have it through his word, as we're studying now. And thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone. Now this is a verse I wanted to get to. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, 
that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that may, they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and loved, hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Uh, we can go on. Um, well, yeah, we're almost done with the chapter. Let's do that. Verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. One thing that notices is so beautiful as we're going through Philippians, he prays that we would be one. He prays for our unity. That's strong and encouraging for us because that's emphasized so much in Philippians. Uh, notice this connection to God gave his people to Jesus before the foundation of the world and he's praying therefore that you'll be with him in uh, the new heavens and the new earth. He prays that you'll be with him and see his glory. So he's prayed for this to happen. God is not going to deny this request, especially as it's the, it's the elect he's praying about. But now I want you to focus on um, verse 20 again. Neither, I, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So the devil wants to take you out at the root of faith, right? Because it's by grace that we are saved through Faith, Ephesians 2.8, right? We are justified by faith. So Satan wants to take you out at faith. So there'll be no fruit, right? No root, no fruit. And he wants to take big attacks at the root if he can't kill you, but he can stop your witness. Notice how much his prayer is that the world might know that God sent him. By seeing our faith. And where do you see faith? Faith is what in Hebrews 11? The evidence of things unseen, right? Faith is seen by acting according to what we know to be true by the word and the work of the Holy Spirit, regardless of what things look like around us. I can say faith is showing up for church, brother, right? Faith is doing the right thing, even when it hurts. Because we know that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Christ, we're showing our faith that he's coming. Faith is continuing to witness in the face of ridicule. But Satan wants to attack your faith because if you lack faith, you're not likely to witness to anyone else that they would know Christ and have saving faith. He writes this, uh, but, but I do want to encourage you. He gives us that scripture that Jesus prayed for Peter's faith not to fail, showing that Satan is directly attacking our faith. That's the main thing about this subtlety. He attacks the most important grace, which is faith. And therefore you see Jesus praying for the faith of Peter and we see Jesus praying for our faith that we would believe in his high priestly prayer in John 17. It's kind of a two-sided thing I want you to see there. Your faith is going to be attacked. And we want, to, we want to recognize, however, that Christ has prayed for our faith so it won't be lost. And, but here's what can happen. Thomas Watson writes this. Though the devil cannot by temptation take away the life of faith, yet he may hinder its growth. He cannot destroy grace, but he may weaken it or debilitate it. 
So he's, he's going out of his way to make us fearful and lack faith. Because you're not going to move mountains with little faith, right? Little faith, actually, I should say, can grow mustard seed, grow from a mustard seed to a tree. But, you know, again, he says, oh, ye of little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. Why are you afraid? Ye of little faith. And uh, he says, faith can move mountains. So we, we want to just be praying, Lord, increase our faith regularly. Help thou our unbelief. I believe, help me with all that I am weak in belief. And pray for one another, especially as we know one another are under temptations. And I think we can pray for Rebecca, for instance, and her witness nationally right now that we talked about at the YMCA. Lord, we pray that her faith fail not. And pray for one another that our faith fail not. Okay, so that is the 20th uh, subtlety that Satan knows how to go after us to get us to be of little faith, to weaken our faith. Uh, if he, he can't kill us, but he can make us really ineffective. Um, and then he talks about why does Satan chiefly go against our faith? Why does Satan uh, chiefly tempt us by assaulting our faith? I think we've touched on it already, but he says this. It is the grace that does Satan uh, most mischief. Faith does the most mischief to Satan himself. It's kind of like he tries to hurt our attack on him. Okay? Well, I gotta say, he is pretty cunning, isn't he? <laughs> you know? And the scripture he gives us here is 1 Peter 5, verse 9. Let's take a look. 1 Peter 5, verse 9. Right after Hebrews, First uh, Peter. Do I have that right? First Peter five, yeah, okay, nine. Sorry, First Peter five, verse nine. Let me uh, let's find a place to start to lead into a little bit. I find that helpful. Uh, yeah, that's never good enough for me. Let's go back further. <laughs> Actually, you know what? There's some pretty familiar stuff leading into it, such as verse 6. You know, let's just start at the beginning of the chapter. Um, you know, let's just start with Genesis and work our way up. No, just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, sit down. I'm caught. Where are you all going? No, just kidding. Okay. We love you, Pastor, but I'm not staying that long tonight. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. First Peter 5. Just kidding. We'll start with First Peter 5, verse 1. But uh, again, verse uh, 9 is what we're focusing on. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now that's how, that's to increase our faith right there, right? Now first the elders, like elders are real tempted to lose faith. They can be easily discouraged. But we keep the crown of glory ahead of us, such as Hebrews 12, verse 2, right? Uh, verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace 
to the humble. Notice that grace. And Satan particularly wants to attack the, the, the grace of faith, which is being led into. Verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. I want to remind you where we were in Philippians last and where we'll be this Lord's Day, Lord willing. Uh, uh, I saw a different way of saying, you know, the, the message was, don't worry, be praying, turn your worries into prayers. Uh, but I saw one of the commentators say, turn your cares into prayers. And this is a verse that's helpful to connect to it. Cast all your care upon him. He careth for you. Um, take, take care for nothing uh, is our, the way our scripture is translated. It has the idea of don't be anxious, don't be overthinking about anything and worried about it. Okay, leading in the verse uh, 8 here. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So there we have an important verse leading into our verse. Satan is roaring, going around like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. But let's remember what we've looked at, and I owe this, I owe this nugget to one of the preachers on KPRZ. I think he's out of L.A. I, sadly, I can't remember his name. Um, I think he's on at 10 in the morning. But he, he, and I heard it again recently. I don't know if it was a replay. I think you will remember this illustration. When does a lion roar? After the kill, not before. Hey, that rhymes. That's a good one to remember. I did just, you helped me get, but when does a lion roar? After the kill, not before. So the point is, you don't see him coming. Do you ever see a documentary of a lion? How they creep up? We've been watching a documentary we found on video that the renters lent to us years ago, Our Planet Earth, you know? Incredible, right? The kids are riveted. Gabriel had to go to bed. Dad, pause it, right? You've got to pause this thing for me. And uh, you see the way, I think it was the hyena. No, it was the, it was the African dogs, I think, coming after the um, wildebeest, I think. And they're just creeping up for a long time. Their ears are back. You know, you're trying to get the benefit of surprise. You start running after your prey. 30, you know, certain couple of places before, they're going to see you. They're out of here. You don't want... Creep up really close, quietly. And that's the lion. He roars out of victory when he's going to eat what he has captured and killed. And so we want to recognize that he is subtle. That The reason I emphasize this again, he's subtle. Lions will creep up on you and you don't know they're coming. I've heard, maybe I said this already, but I've heard often a mountain lion, it'll see you. You'll never know it, it saw you. You'll never see it and you won't know it saw you, right? You know? which can make you a little scared walking around the mountains sometimes. I was up there hiking once by myself, and I was sure there was the shadow way up on the mountain. I'm like, I think that's a mountain lion. He's just watching me. And if he is, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know. And I don't think it was. But, you know, you, they probably are. How many times have they probably watched us? You know, Be careful, Mr. Renner. I carry lots of weapons with it. Okay. But so keep that in mind. He is like a lion looking whom he may devour. Now our verse given to us, verse 9. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. How do you resist the devil that's trying to eat you? It says resist how? Steadfast in what? In fear? In the faith. The Christian faith. In your own faith in Christ. How do you resist the devil? What does James tell us? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But how do you resist him? Steadfast in the faith. 
Because after all, how is Satan particularly going to go after you? You sinner. You unholy person. You're no good. I couldn't believe what uh, someone uh, told uh, one of my family members about what people have said to this person for years. I couldn't believe it. Even their own father, I couldn't believe it. And it kind of helps understand a few things. Like when people get you to believe something about yourself, it affects everything. How you see yourself, how you live, how you act. And um, thankfully there's victory in Christ there, but Satan is, he is your adversary. He is always going to be trying to convince you you can't go to Jesus with that. You're not going to be forgiven for that. You shouldn't go to church this morning. You know what you did last night? Like it's just whatever it is, he's going to go after you and say, you, you can't have assurance of salvation. We studied that recently, but how dare you be so arrogant to think that you can know for sure you're saved. And how do you stand up against that stuff? Faith. Steadfast faith. You know your scriptures, you quote your scriptures, you pray your scriptures, and you stay close to the people of faith who will tell you the truth about Christ and yourself and one another. And you don't let the lion get any of you out on the side telling you lies about yourself or God's people or the Bible or Christ. You stand fast in the faith. And James promises us, you uh, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. You resist, resist by steadfast faith. Now, I appreciate Jay Montgomery Boyce pointed out elsewhere that usually the way uh, you resist sin is you flee from it in faith. You believe the truth of what Scripture says and not the lies that Satan tries to make you believe about those sins. But in terms of Satan himself, and as you know, he's there, you just, and I could bring up how Luther often dealt with Satan, but uh, you know what that is. I'll move on so you can go see the article. But I think it's that idea of steadfast faith. All right, yeah, I got the noise. Boys couldn't resist the opportunity. Flatulence. And he learned it from one of the ladies in his church, apparently. You can read my article about it. But the point of it is, at some point, or, or he says, when Satan keeps telling me all the bad things about myself, reminds me about my past, I remind him of his future. You know, uh, Satan wants us to think that we just have to run and hide like scared little rabbits from him. No, because Jesus is also a lion. He's the lion of Judah. He's the high priest out of the line, out of the tribe of Judah, right? And in him we are saved. Yes, Isaac. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really cool song, The Lion of Judah. Yeah, we hear that on the radio a lot. Okay, so the biggest grace, this is the seventh, the 20th subtlety we're still on. One way that Satan goes after you to, to really, really subtly to get you to sin is to attack your faith. Because when you do struggle to believe you're forgiven, when you do struggle to believe that you're a saint, that you're going to act like a sinner. Right? If you feel like you are never going to be able to be forgiven your sins, you go do them more. Might as well do them more. Right? So how do you fight that? What hurts him? Steadfast faith, right? First, Timothy, or First Peter 5, 9. How do you fight against Satan? Faith. Which is why, what's he going to go after? Your faith. <laughs> He'll do it like a cunning lion. You fight him with faith. Okay? Okay. Uh, the next, oh no, here's a little more, uh, another thing that he says in this section. The shield of faith prevents the fiery darts of temptation from piercing us through. 
Faith is a shield. So much that Satan comes and shoots at us doesn't have to hit us if we have our shield up. Right? Uh, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6 that he's alluding to. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 16. Uh, Once I can get my footing here, one second. Okay. Ephesians 6, verse 16. Yeah, let's start earlier. Don't worry, let's not go back to Genesis. Let's start a little earlier, but I think the context is good. We've We've read this... Like this before, a few weeks earlier. Exodus, start in Exodus. I have it from one of the elders. He's the senior elder. I'm not going to argue with him. Let's go to Exodus, and hopefully we'll get here. No, just, man, how are we going to get through Psalm 119 at one point? No, just kidding. Okay. Pretty soon I'm going to have somebody throw their shoe at me. Okay. Um, no, no. Let's start with verse 10. I don't want to get too silly here. It's a Wednesday night. I think uh, Mary Hart did the good leg of medicine. But let me, let me, let us, let me rein me in, and thus you guys. Uh, verse 10. Let's start with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. See? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Remember, stand fast in the faith, right? Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, so look at this, above all, verse 16, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So he's talking about putting on the whole armor of God to fight Satan. And he says, above all, what's the most important grace, the most important weapon against Satan? Faith, verse 16. And what is it? The shield. Now, I know the shield can have its offensive aspects, but the shield is mostly defensive, right? Get behind the shield. And here's the beautiful thing for us to think about. As we are called to stand together and stand fast in the faith. You think of the Roman armies. when One of the reasons they were able to defeat all kinds of groups uh, is when they were so organized... And they'd bring those shields together, and they had a wall. And it was very difficult to get in on them, right? You kind of see that thing, I think, with the Norsemen as well, that idea of shields and bringing them together, right? And uh, can you even think of Nehemiah? Pretty sure as one was building, the other was guarding. with something, some kind of idea like a shield, right? So shield is to defend against Satan's weapons. He's shooting arrows of dart and despair and uh, wanting to get us to be distracted and temptation and and the shield of faith can protect them from impacting us, from touching us, and from impacting us. But we've got to hold the shield of faith up. So how do we fight Satan? 
faith. What is Satan going to look at to try to destroy the most and the quickest? What's he going to spend the most time time to bring down? Faith. Yes, Abraham. It's not exactly the same, but uh, <coughs> oh, I can't quite remember the name of it, but there was when God brought the large army down to like a few hundred people, and they thought they were at the river, and the ones who put their their spears or swords down, they Yeah, God wanted to bring it down to just a few people to show that those with the faith in him, he could do great power, yeah. Do you remember, uh, I don't know if you remember, I heard one of you say, that's where we got the name for Gideon, Gideon's army, yep, yep. After we preached that, I was, your, your mommy and I finally agreed on a name, I said, it's going to be Gideon, and I convinced her, be, yeah, it's Gideon, yeah. Yeah, and that's what we see by those, like, I think Caleb also, like, he was uh, in his 80s, right? I'm as strong as I was in my youth. Give me those people. Give me, I'm going to go beat them up. And he does. You know, like, whoa. You know? I mean, there's just the, that faith uh, can be strong at any time. And it's in the weak that the Lord shows his strength. And because the faith is in what? I think this is important. So faith is what? It's belief. But is the faith and belief in ourselves? Who's it in? God. Nothing is impossible with God. Jesus, right? The Lion of Judah. The word, the truth that God says, the Holy Spirit with us, the promises of God. Faith is in these things, not in ourselves, right? I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth us, right? So when we argue with Satan about our future, it's because we point to Christ sitting at God's right hand as our advocate against the accuser in heaven, right? Okay. You preached on that verse on October 29th. Which verse? Oh, Ephesians 6.16. turn your fears into faith. Yeah, I think that might have been a request by uh, Jose Sanchez, I think. Yeah, was, um, if I go back and look, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was by request. Yeah, yeah, because what was it? Um, put on the whole armor of God, is it? William Gurnall, I'm forgetting. I don't know if that's the right name. Uh, it is, yeah. His, yeah, put on the whole armor of God. And of course, we have that in our fine library. So I looked at that part as... I know he was thinking of it related to that, so, yeah. Okay, uh, I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, but he does get into despair pretty soon. And that's a really important thing about what faith is to combat, right? So Satan wants to get our faith down. He wants to bring our defense of faith down. Why? So his fire arts, fiery darts can get us. And more than anything, he wants to nail us with despair. Um, but that's coming let me uh, go to the 21st subtlety. So most of our time tonight will end up being on the 20th subtlety, but I think a pretty important one to uh, digress with. But let's go to the 21st subtlety. Satan encourages those doctrines that are flesh-pleasing. Satan encourages those doctrines that are flesh-pleasing. It takes off from strictness of life. It takes off from strictness of life. Uh, I'm thinking about even, you know, some things are profitable for us. No, some things are lawful for us, but not all things are profitable, right? He could even, this is Adiaphora, yeah, but it might be a detriment to the faith of others. Or, you know, it might be a temptation that it becomes out of uh, moderation for us, right? Um, he's not getting into that directly, but he, he will encourage us with doctrines that are flesh-pleasing. They're the easiest things. 
and keep us from the important things. He says it takes them off from strictness of life. Uh, the devil knows that it is a cheap and easy doctrine which pleases the flesh, and he doubts not, but he shall have customers enough. We like the easy doctrines, and some of them, I think, especially if they're not true, but they're easy, right? Such as God loves me and just wants me to be happy, right? Or God loves everyone, you know, these kinds of things. The easy doctrines and uh, then please the faith. Well, if God loves me already, I don't really need to be worried about being reconciled to him, and I'll go along my sinful ways. He loves me as I, just as I am. Well, it's not that God doesn't love us in Christ from the foundation of the world, his elect, but he will have us be saved from our sins that would cause his wrath to destroy us in hell forever, right? Um, so, for instance, how does Satan subtly try to influence us to just go to the easy, flesh-pleasing things, you know? Not to get in, you know, how many churches just kind of do say doctrine divides, but it actually unifies in the truth, right? How many churches are really, really emphasizing programs and, you know, we've got all the latest thises and that's. But let, let's not really spend a whole lot of time going to the men's or ladies' studies. And, you know, we don't, we don't really need to go through the Westminster standards all the time. Why do you have such a long membership class? And, you know, this idea that we'd actually have to study to show ourselves approved and know depth, right? That we wouldn't, you know, let's not be so much by the, like the Bereans. The Thessalonians are fine, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, he, he wants to do that. He wants to discourage us from being Puritans. He wants to discourage us from being reformers. He wants to discourage revival in our lives, in our homes, in our church, in our nation. So he'll get us to focus on flesh-pleasing things, right? And that could include we're going to spend all, all our time, you know, in certain political movements that kind of sound good on the surface, but are really not so much about Christianity, you know? And uh, discourage real reform, real change. That we would be a nation that God would have a good reason to bless us rather than try to demand it of him and pretend we already have a good reason. You know? um, let's turn to Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble with these pages. Okay, Titus 2.14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. This is what he's looking for, that we would be peculiar out of a zeal for good works. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it isn't just that God saved us, not by our works, but unto good works, which he had preordained for us before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. They don't save us, but he saved us to walk in them. He wants us to be zealous for good works, not a zeal without knowledge, the scriptures qualify, not knowledge without love, but a zeal for deep doctrine 
that it produces good and holy works. We should be concerned to know the truth and be set free by it in all of its details. And we, could, we should be concerned to live a good and godly life according to his word. And I remind you what I know I've reiterated many times, but it always comes to mind. First of all, in Titus, I forgot to look it up, but there's a concern not to deny our profession by our lifestyle. I'm sorry, I neglected to look it up tonight. I thought of it, but I'm pretty sure it's in Titus, that we wouldn't deny our profession by our lifestyle. But I've brought, I've brought up often, uh, I've heard it shared that some who went to Dr. Richard Bacon's church years ago for a Puritan conference, well before my time here, um, and uh, they asked him, well, look at all these people here for your conference, but they're not here for your church. Why is that? And he says, that's because people love the doctrine of the Puritans, but not the practice of the Puritans. So there could be a zeal for doctrine, but not a zeal, a zeal for the proper behavior that's supposed to be connected and flow from those doctrines. Or there can just be a laziness. I don't really want to have to study anything that much. I don't really want to study doctrine. I just like the feel-good stuff, you know. Can't we have more music and less preaching? You know, I don't know. Pick your, pick your example. Um, Satan is going to try to discourage us from true spiritual uh, things with flesh-pleasing, easy things. So let's just encourage us as we're starting another year together. That God would help us stay on the straight and narrow. That God would help us stay on the old paths. That God would help us to be following after Christ and not take the easy ways and not be distracted and discouraged from what we know the Bible says. In and out of season. Okay. Um, let's go to the 22nd subtlety. Satan has his temptations in reference to holy duties. Some of these overlap each other. Holy duties. So he has his temptations related to holy duties. We have to be careful. While we're in the business of doing holy things, though we're to be zealous about holy things, they could be our downfall all the same. He says, first of all, he wants to hinder us from duty. 1 Thessalonians 2.18. For sake of time, I'm going to read the scriptures he quotes directly. We would have come once and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Well, you know, sometimes Paul credits the Holy Spirit for why I didn't go there and instead I went here. But Satan hindered us. It may have been, I'm not so sure it was temptations there as roadblocks. It could have been other people's temptations and sins that were the roadblocks. But we want to recognize that Satan will try to keep us from doing our holy duties. He'll try to keep us from getting there. Let's recognize that when we're trying to get our kids together and get to church on the Lord's Day. Satan's trying to hinder us. The Lord isn't, right? As one example. Uh, what else does Satan want to hinder us from? Meditation. He will let men profess or pray and hear in a formal manner, which does him no hurt and them no good. But he opposes meditation as being a means to compose the heart and make it serious. That's why I want to be careful. I like to have a little fun with you on Wednesday nights, but I want to be careful we're not serious about where we're going. Uh, he wants to keep us from thinking much. What is meditation? Uh, the Proverbs kind of give us the idea. It's like a cow chewing its cud. I remember my professor said the Proverbs are presented to us kind of like hard candy. It's meant to be sucked on. I have a bad habit of chewing them pretty quickly. and That's probably why my teeth aren't so good. But <laughs> the hard candy is meant to be sucked on, to be thought about, you know. 
And uh, like a cow chews its cud, it you know, regurgitates it in the mouth and chews it again. Now they have four stomachs. This is an illustration, not literally. You know, we don't want to have acid reflux if the Lord would allow. And often that's if we're all meditating on the scriptures about proper diet and exercise. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll talk about the, how, do kids have, how do cows have four stomachs. The quick answer is God made them that way. But we can go study it more, how they work, okay? But the point is, meditation, the devil doesn't want us to spend time thinking. He says, it's great if you guys go to the best church, the most biblical church, as long as you don't think about what you're hearing. As long as you're allowing yourself to be busy in and out of the sanctuary all the time, distracting everyone else, not even paying attention yourself, don't you dare train your children how to sit and listen, because if they don't learn how to sit and listen and think, oh, he's making great, great success there. He doesn't want us to think. He doesn't want us to pay attention and think about the context when we're reading the Bible. He wants us to think that we've got this brilliant aha moment that no one else has ever seen. Rather than, look what the context of this verse is, and it clearly isn't about that. It's about this. You know, I'm tempted to go a lot into Philippians, but what I want to share with you is, as you know, I was almost there to preach for you the Lord's Day evening in Philippians, and so I'm ahead in a sense as long as I can keep it that way this week. Um, for Philippians 4, 8 and 9, we are told what to think about. Therefore, finally, brethren, whatever is noble, whatever is good, report, right? Whatever is holy, think on these things. And the God of peace will be with you. He also says, and do them, whatever you've learned by my example. Think and do. So those are two commands we'll look at, hopefully, this Lord's Day. Think and do. And the reward is the God of peace. Just as he said in the verses earlier, don't worry, be praying. And the peace of God will keep and guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guard it from bad thoughts, you know. Uh, But it's all about thinking. Now remember, I will tie this in again to Matthew 6 where Jesus is talking about and think not about tomorrow. Don't think about these things. Think about these things. The message was, and it's the number one most listened to sermon on our sermon audio page by far. The message was keep changing the way you think. Keep changing the way you think. You have control about what you think. You stop the bad thoughts. You think the right things. You focus on the good and you let love and wisdom overlook a lot of sin. That's how you don't worry. That's how you have peace, contentment, okay? But when I'm studying this, it's striking how many of the commentators, and I plan to bring a lot of these quotes to you, this particular sermon is going to have a lot of borrowing of the commentators, some really great stuff. And some of them have said so strongly, we don't like to think anymore. We are not a thinking people. I remember when I was in college and a lady I worked with, she was secretary of a department at the college and uh, I was going to Presbyterian Church. Turned out she was too. She was, used to make muffins for us. And, uh, which when you're in college, young man, you're so thankful. <laughs> and, um, but I remember she said once, I never forgot, she says, Presbyterianism is a thinking man's religion. You're expected to think and know your doctrine and connect the dots and know why it matters. And what does the Presbyterian system give us to do that? The Westminster Standards. Very good. Like any good Reformed work, right? Three forms of unity, what have you. Um, But they kept emphasizing how much we don't want to think. And the devil, that's the devil's doing. 
to keep you from feeling like you have time to think. Open your Bible, read it if you do. As long as you read your Bible, but don't really think about it. Say you did your devotions, be able to tell people who read your Bible, but you didn't actually think about it much. You didn't pray over it much. A lot of the books I have on preaching, say, and uh, on Psalm 23, uh, uh, McMillian, he says, the worst thing you can do is read the Bible without prayer first. It's like you're trying to have a garden with no water. So before we even read, we need to be praying, not just eating, but praying before we read. Lord, help me. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Give me wisdom. I never don't pray that before I prepare sermons for you. Before I start reading the Hebrew and the Greek. Because I'm very concerned that I don't try to rely on my own ability to see things. Now God used these human things, but you want the Holy Spirit to be guiding you. And then thinking about it. What are the main things being said? What's the point of the text? What's being said about the point of the text? What's the best way to apply this to the people? What are the main things that need to be explained? How do I even know? I don't know what that's talking about. What commentators are going to help me? Thinking. You don't just show up and throw a sermon at you. And I appreciate one of the, one of the articles I read in a book on preaching said, the, one of the most loving things you can do for people is organize a sermon. Organizing is hard work. Anybody can step up and talk off. I could have preached Philippians two or 4, 8 to 9 for you easily this Lord's the evening off the cuff. I had done a lot of work, but I hadn't processed the thinking enough. It wouldn't have been enough of what I'd like to give you. And I know that we can do other things sometimes. Thinking hard and helping you think and meditate. Satan doesn't want you to do that. He wants to tempt you not to think. And, and, and I'm going to give you these quotes really good, but I can't resist. I'm going to give them to you now. Two different gentlemen in their commentaries said, we've really got to be concerned about our technology today and how much it causes us not to be a thinking people. And what, what do you think they gave as the example? What do you think they gave as the example of the technology that's very dangerous? You think it's our cell phones? Television? Most of you people think that? Internet? I'm setting you up. They mentioned the gramophone. You know what the gramophone is? You ever see RCA with the little dog with the cocked head and the big gramophone? Yeah? Uh, yeah, it's 1800s. I guess they kind of went out in the 80s, 1980s, before the cassettes. But uh, it's like you play this record, like an old record player, but it's coming through this big cone so you can hear it, you know? Uh, and they said the cinema... And they also said the wireless, but they weren't talking about wireless internet. What do you think the wireless is? I'll give you a hint. Obviously, this is an older time, and it's in Britain. So they, what do they call the wireless? What's the wireless? The radio. We've got to watch out about the radio and cinema movies, and we've got to watch out about that gramophone. You know, we're never going to have any time to think. That was... Written, I, I can't even find the book online. I'm trying to... They, one of those books that doesn't say the date of the publication. Urgh! So I can't even find the book online. I don't know if it's just not popular. It's from our library. It's a great little book, Outlines of Philippians, by a missionary. It's clearly from Britain, because he says the gramophone <laughs> and the wireless for radio. I'm, it's probably in the 1800s. Now, I'm going to have fun with you this. I'm going to warm you up and I'm going to give you their exact quotes. But the other guy says similar things. We've got to be so careful about the telephone. <laughs> He's talking about like this thing that hooks to a wall. And when I was growing up, the big thing was call waiting. 
Oh, we used to drive everybody crazy. Hold on a minute, I got another call. <laughs> Hello, oh, it's not you, hold on again. <laughs> I mean, that's what we had to deal with when I was growing up. That was major technology, that you could take a second call on the phone. Maybe you had buttons, my grandpa still had the old, my grandpa's phone, I think you could like kill a nation with that thing, it was huge and solid, and it was the dial. <laughs> and I think it weighed about three tons, you know? But, um, uh, but you know, that's what they were concerned about. And this guy that said that, what do, you, what do you think the date of publication was? We've got to watch out for modern technology. And it's causing us not to be able to think. 1949. And I'm pretty sure I quoted something similar to you when I preached uh, looking at the book on um, the tyranny of the urgent and the things that can suck our time. And he was concerned about the telephone. He wrote it in the 1980s. And I think to myself, what they can't even imagine today. Now, let me, by the way, I'm giving all of this to you in a sermon. I'm not editing it out because it's too good, but I'm warming you up because uh, I'll give it to you better. But here's something that struck out to me, uh, sh- struck me, stuck out to me. I shared with Fernanda another nugget I heard on the radio. The guy said he has, there's a study that if you, your life is much better, your life, your day goes much better if you don't look at your cell phone for the first hour of the morning. And I'm like, and he said, I started trying that. I don't do it perfectly. He says, it's true. And I, you know, I say to myself, yeah, you know, we've got the Bible apps and all this. Yeah, but you know what? Somehow you notice you have texts and they get you first. And it's great if it's Mr. Renner's, but you know what? Then it's everybody else's because he does a Bible nugget, right? And uh, try that. Coming back to a sermon near you soon. Hopefully this Lord's Day evening, unless the baby's born, and then you have to wait another week. But so I, I kind of want to stress this though. We are not a thinking people. I remember a friend of mine in seminary, and he's a chaplain at Geneva College now for many years, uh, Rut Etheridge. He he said in a sermon once in chaplain, he says, you know, Christianity has its biggest problem is we are not a discerning people anymore. We don't want to think. We're not critical of bad doctrine or bad practice. Everybody, you know, one thing we're studying, uh, Olivia, she's preparing for college and, you know, doing papers and things, applying for scholarships, quoting uh, some things from a book. They're saying, uh, here we stand, the book from the Alliance is, um, people don't even believe there is truth anymore. It's not a matter of arguing what is true. They don't even believe there is truth so it's almost impossible to have a meaningful discussion. I always like to say, there's no truth, there's no objective reality, okay. So go ahead and go through that red light, see what happens. <laughs> you know, but uh, I mean, even to say there's no truth, is that true? <laughs> They're making a truth statement, right? But my point is, we don't think anymore. We don't think, we don't discern. But the biggest concern he has is meditation. We don't spend time meditating. And as Paul would encourage us, if you want the God of peace to be with you, then think about the right things. And in context of the difficulties they're experiencing, and just having said, don't worry, be praying, don't focus on the bad things about people. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time obsessing about whatever frustrates you about one another. Yodius and Syntyche, forgive me if I'm getting those names wrong too, ladies, focus on what you can focus on, put it on the back burner, and get back on working in the main thing that we've always been working on, right? Just focus your thoughts. Focus your thoughts on the good things. Again, let wisdom and knowledge 
overlook plenty of bad. It doesn't mean there aren't times we have to deal with things, but I think we obsess way too much on stupid little things. And we will not have peace of God, and we won't have the God of peace blessing us as we choose to wallow and worry and not control our thoughts. And here's how it can be. I could almost picture if Paul's preaching today, or if we're reading it. Think not on this, but on that. Yeah, okay, I think I'm Hey, I'm talking, oh, oh, sorry. I mean, you know what, get off your phone! You know, stop looking out the window at the bird! You know, whatever. Think on these things. Spend time thinking. Meditating. Another thing that he wants us to stop doing is uh, mortification. He wants to stop us with mortification. Colossians 3, 5. Mortify your members which are upon the earth, uncleanness, inordinate affection. Now again, what is he doing ultimately, the category we're under? He wants to encourage doctrines that are flesh-pleasing. He wants us to do things that are easy. He wants us to think about things that are easy and go to churches that's more about how we feel rather than what we think. Let our feelings direct our thoughts rather than our thoughts, our feelings. No way to train your children. Satan will let men be angry with sin, exchange sin, or restrain sin, which keeps it a prisoner that cannot break out. But when it comes to taking away the life of sin, he labors to stop the warrant and hinder the execution. When sin is mortifying, Satan is being crucified. Ah, we want to defeat Satan? He's trying to kill our faith. Why? Because faith is exactly what we're told to stand fast with and with a shield beat him with. Similarly, he wants us not to be mortifying sin, not to be killing the old man within us, because that's to crucify him and weaken his experience. So related to this, so basically that we would never actually change, that we'd pray, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil, but we already have in our mind the evil we're going to do as soon as we're done praying that we would never really change anything in our life, that we wouldn't work at some of the elementary things that set us up better for holy things, killing old things for space for the holy things to be vivified, the new man to grow by killing the old stuff in the way of growth, right? If we want our plants to grow well, our flowers, what do we do? We get rid of the weeds that choke the growth. And this is what Satan wants to keep us from. Oh, talk about it all you want. Yeah, talk about how you're going to kill this sin, you're going to be a different person, and this is your church now, and this is the life you're going to live, but don't actually do anything different. Don't actually take advice about what you need to change in your life to set up victory in Jesus. Oh, just presume upon Jesus' grace and go and do the same things. It's a little overlap with our last study. Now, related to this is self-examination, wanting to give us easy, flesh-pleasing, I would say people-pleasing things. Self-examination, he wants to keep us from that. But we're told, examine yourselves, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, self-examination. It's a metaphor from metal, he says, that is pierced through, so see if there be gold within. It's like that crucible, right? The fire, purify yourself burn things, self-examine. Ah, this isn't good. Get it out. Make it more pure. Work on yourselves. Self-examination is a spiritual inquisition set up in the soul. And by the way, I think it was Thomas Watson. I forget 
it was a little while ago, but you might recall we were told that self-examination is one of the things we hate to do the most. We hate to do self-examination. Now, listen to this. He has another policy, which is to show men the faults of others. In order to keep them from searching their own, he will allow them spectacles or glasses to see what is amiss in others, but not a looking glass to behold their own faces and see what is amiss in themselves. How does Satan distract us with flesh? Oh, well, yeah, maybe there is, there's that sin, that wrong thing. Let's do flesh-pleasing. I'm don't happy about what they're doing. And yeah, let's pretend we're having a prayer chain when it's really a gossip chain. And, you know, oh, we forgot to pray because we're talking so much about, oh, poor them, this or that. And meanwhile, we're not looking at ourselves at all. We love, love to look for others' sins. And we like to focus on them so we don't look at changing ourselves. We love to look at the smaller things of other people and we never correct the big things in ourselves. And Jesus says something about this. Can you remember in Matthew? The eye. Don't be looking at the little speck in your friend's eye when you got this two by four sticking out of your eye and everywhere you switch, people have to duck. No, but seriously, isn't that true? We don't want to pull major things out of us, but we're so happy to criticize others for little things. Yes, Fernanda. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Fernanda's pointing out her father used to say, when you're pointing at someone, you have three fingers pointing back at you. And kind of a thumb, right? Maybe the thumb is to go... (laughs) Yeah, you actually have a lot more fingers pointing at you. Let's focus on our own things. And beloved, that's the thing. No matter what, even people might say the wrong things about us, the truth is there's always things we've got to work on about ourselves, right? Let's work on ourselves. Work on ourselves first and foremost if we want to see others change. Doesn't mean there isn't a place for dealing with things, right? Matthew 18, there's a time and place for these things. But most of the time, we should be really concerned with ourselves and much less obsessed about others. Okay. Um, His apology is to discourage and duty. He wants to distract us uh, with flesh-pleasing, and he wants to discourage us from our duty, to doing what we're responsible with. Uh, Watson writes, if he cannot keep us from duty, if he can't keep us from doing our duty... He will run him on too far in it. Humiliation or mourning for sin is a duty, but Satan will push it too far. He never thinks a man is humbled enough till he despairs. Remember, that's one thing we looked at. Satan wants all the other sins to lead you to the worst sin of despair, so you kill yourself. He would make a Christian wade so far in the waters of repentance that he should get beyond his depth and be drowned in the gulf of despair. So repentance is correct, but it can become morbid and more about just self-beating rather than God-pleasing, taking mercy and change rather than, no, I just have to keep healing myself and and we don't change until we get our place to where we're not anywhere close to Jesus from it. That's called a worldly sorrow, Paul says, not a godly sorrow. Or whatever the duty could be, we should be, could be trying to be so far in one sin, that one duty that we neglect the others, right? He talked about that earlier. He says, let not Satan's temptations drive thee to despair. You see how subtle an enemy he is to hinder from duty or discourage in duty or put men on too far in duty that he may run them upon the rock of despair. Had we not need them who have such a stumble, uh, excuse me, have we not need then who have such a subtle enemy to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. 
and we'll close there. He, he often ends a few sections saying, do we not have such a need to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation? By the way, a sermon was preached a little while here this year that you can and you must defeat despair. And it was when I was hunting this book for the quotes on despair. I'm pretty sure these were the ones, you know. And, uh, and I ended up preaching that sermon for you. And now that's why we're reading this section of the book together because I did all that highlighting, hunting, and I thought, well, we might as well use that for some study together. So thanks for bearing with me. I know we went a little long tonight. But um, uh, may the Lord protect us indeed. May the Lord deliver us from what we studied tonight. May he uh, deliver us first uh, from losing faith. Uh, May he also uh, deliver us from flesh-pleasing doctrines. May he help us to be a thinking people, meditating on his scriptures, not only what they mean, but what would he have us do with this? And would he have us be looking at ourselves in self-examination and mortification of the old self, that we would be vivifying the new self, zealous for good works and good works that truly glorify him and are not obsessing with ourselves, that Satan would drive us into despair, or other things which is supposed to be a good thing. May the Lord deliver us from these things. So we've gotten through the 23rd subtlety. So we've got the 24th, the 25th, 26th, 27th. I think we might be able to do that in our next study. We'll see how it goes. And then we've got a whole bunch, bunch more other things to study <laughs> before we finish this part of the book. But thank you. And uh, let us pray together the Lord's Prayer. And let us have particularly the sixth petition in mind as, as we close together. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.